Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today we are talking about perfectionism and I am so excited about the guest I brought on to talk about this topic. Catherine Morgan Schaffler is a New York City-based psychotherapist, an author, and a speaker. And she's also the former on-site therapist at Google. For years, she's worked with legions of self-described perfectionists, bright, ambitious, hardworking women who inexplicably felt like something is wrong with them. In her new book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, Catherine takes back the term perfectionist from the critics and argues you don't have to stop being a perfectionist to be healthy. She writes about how perfectionism can hold women back or allow them to soar, depending on how it's managed. And for women who are sick of being given the generic advice to find balance, she brings forward a new approach. And Catherine, I told you that I have your book and have read it and am sort of the gold star girl who spent 
all my time underlining and making notes and dog earing. So I really loved it. And I think that my listeners are going to get a ton out of this conversation. Well, I love to hear that. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So your book just came out. I want everyone to get like a taste of all the good stuff that's in there. But as you know, a people pleaser slash overachiever slash always wanting the pat on the head. Your first chapter in the book is called You're Going to Be Created on This. And I literally laughed out loud when I read that. Yeah. I mean, I think to to get through the arduous work of writing a book, you have to have a sense of humor. And so I, I tried to punch a little bit of that throughout the work. Well, so tell me about the book and your business and sort of why you're drawn to women who are self-described perfectionists? Well, you know, I think that we write the books we most need ourselves. And the themes in the book pertain specifically to perfectionists. They're also universal themes of understanding your self-worth, understanding why you are striving for what you're striving and what you think that's going to get you. And looking at your identity in a way which allows you to recognize patterns and gain insight and then grow as opposed to looking at your identity in a way that limits you and restricts you into a certain way of viewing yourself. And so I looked at my own life. I looked at how drawn I have always been to working with perfectionists. And I had, I mentioned it briefly in the book, this moment in time, which I think we all go through repeatedly, where I just totally lost control of my life, brought on by health diagnosis that I was not expecting. And, you know, subsequently having to let go of so much of what I had planned for in this very meticulous way. And it sounds so cliche, but I never realized how much I was attached to control until I lost so much of it. And I had to ask myself some big questions like, well, who are you now if you can't do this? Or, you know, this was at a time when I had just been married and I had to go to chemotherapy without freezing my eggs. It was like, well, who are you going to be if you can't have kids? And who are, you know, just like one question after the other, after the other, I really identified with my work and my job. And I thought, oh my God, what if I have to leave my practice? That was one of the scariest thoughts for me. And who are you if you're not what you do? And just questions like that, that rang the bell on something that I have has always been with me. And the more I looked into perfectionism academically, I was surprised that we are really in the infancy of our understanding of this topic. There's not that much research into the details that I noticed coming up in my practice. And I had no language to describe the kind of perfectionists that I saw which deviated from this classic type A version that we all sort of think about and the perfectionism that I noticed coming up in myself. And I thought, there's no language for this. I can't find answers anywhere else. I just have to independently study it. And so it set me on this track. And like I said, 
the more I learned, the more surprised and shocked I was. And there were just layer after layer of how gendered this construct is, how applicable it is, how context-driven it is. So, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I have to contain all of this somehow. And so that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I have to say, I always try to do my research before I interview someone. And so I read your book. And then I was just Googling, you know, types of perfectionism. In your book, you present five types of perfectionists. And when I Googled it, it's like, look, there are three types. It's self-oriented perfectionism. It's other-oriented and it's socially prescribed. And I saw how much more nuanced your research was in differentiating between high strivers and perfectionists, as well as, you know, the adaptive versus maladaptive types of perfectionists. I did take your quiz. I'm totally going to put it in the show notes um, because I thought it was super interesting. So just to tell you, I got 57% Parisian perfectionist and then 30% classic. And then the rest was intense, which I thought was really interesting. Mm, that's very similar to my profile, except instead of classic, I'm messy in that oh, space. So okay. I'm, I steer mostly Parisian and then like 30%-ish messy and then the rest intense. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's tell people about five types so this makes sense. Yes. So I present a whole new way of looking at perfectionism in this book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. And one of the things that really bothered me about books I read about perfectionism when I was trying to understand it more deeply is that books in the personal development and self-help space all basically echo this message of just don't be so much of a perfectionist. And first of all, that message doesn't work because people who identify as perfectionists identify in that way deeply. It's like identifying as a romantic or an activist. It's not, you know, the same as saying, oh, I'm kind of tired today. Oh, I'm kind of a perfectionist today. It's more of an enduring identity marker. And secondly, it was all about how to eradicate entirely the idea that you should be striving towards an ideal. And then I noticed a lot of the language was directed towards women. And then I noticed a, a corollary to the directive towards women to not be so perfectionistic, which is to find balance. And then I tried my best to look for messages in which men were being told to find more balance and figure out how to, you know, juggle all the many tasks of the modern day woman. And there just weren't any. And so in really looking at the implicit messaging of the word perfectionist, I realized that we use that word to describe ambitious power-seeking women in our culture. So all these directives to be less of that are actually very alarming to me. I get super into that in a chapter I dedicate specifically to the gendered nature of perfectionism, but that is like 
the way that I view this contracts from 30,000 feet in the air. And in terms of the specific personality profiles, which can be expressed in healthy ways, adaptive ways, and unhealthy ways, there are five types. And the five types are the classic. And this is what we all sort of tend to think of when we think of the perfectionist, you know, buttoned up, rigid. They all, like I said, have advantages and liabilities. So the pros of being a classic perfectionist are you're highly reliable, you know, you're organized, you infuse structure into every everywhere you go. Um, the cons are that there can be some interpersonal challenges in terms of feeling taken for granted because everyone knows you're you're going to get it done, you're going to do it, and people rely on you to the extent in which they absolve themselves of responsibility to participate sometimes. And there can also be interpersonal challenges because classic perfectionists don't necessarily love collaboration. There's a, if you want something well, do it yourself kind of mentality at times. So the next profile is the procrastinator perfectionist. And the easiest way to describe this is procrastinator perfectionists want the conditions to be perfect before they start something. And of course, this is never true. And so the pros of being a procrastinator perfectionist are we're talking about very thoughtful people, people who are not impulsive, people who can see a scenario from a 360 degree angle and play out many iterations of something unfolding. But on the con side, your preparative measures pass the point of diminishing returns and they can paralyze you such that you're not ever actually starting, right? And the counterpart to the procrastinator perfectionist is the messy perfectionist. And messy perfectionists are in love with starting. They are start happy, as I like to say, and they will start a million projects because they find that beginning rush intoxicating and energizing. But messy perfectionists have problems when they hit the middle and the tedium because they want the process to remain as perfect as it was when it started. And that also never happens. And so, you know, messy perfectionists on the pro side, naturally enthusiastic, they're warm, they're positive, they're superstar idea generators. On the con side, these are people who, if they're not managing their perfectionistic tendencies, can say yes to a million things and commit to nothing. And this gets dangerous because it creates a false narrative of, oh, I'm just not disciplined enough. Nobody takes me seriously. I can't ever follow through on anything. And none of that is true. It's just that you need extra support in the middle, just like a procrastinator perfectionist needs extra support in the beginning. And then there are intense perfectionists. And these are, if you think of the public persona of a Steve Jobs or Gordon Ramsay or your James Cameron, these are people who are focused on the end of the process being perfect. So they want the outcome. They're over-indexed sometimes on efficiency and they want to get something done. And at times they can lose sight of the process and the way that gets done, whether other people are being exploited or not, or overworked, whether they themselves are burning themselves out, burning the candle at both ends. And so intense perfectionists have razor sharp focus. It's like, if you want something done, give it to an intense perfectionist, but sometimes they can leave a real wake of drama and dysfunction behind them if they're not being intentional about how they're getting to that outcome. 
And then lastly, there's Parisian perfectionists. And this is a really interesting type of perfectionism because it plays out interpersonally. So we tend to think of perfectionists as high strivers, people who always want upward mobility professionally, for example. Whereas Parisian perfectionists, their ideal that they're after is about connection. So they want ideal connection to others, which oftentimes shows up as wanting to be perfectly liked, but it can also show up as wanting to perfectly like others, wanting to be perfectly understood, wanting to perfectly understand themselves, God, any kind of connection to anything, they want it to be perfect. And so the pros of this type are that they have a real live wire understanding of the power of connection, but on the con side, when you're so focused on being perfectly understood or being perfectly liked, you can sometimes really slip into some toxic people pleasing or just abandon yourself in this quest to connect to other people. And in doing so, you kind of like leave yourself behind. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting because I, I described myself as a recovering people pleaser. And I remember going to a therapist when I was like, you know, in my early 30s, I had a little baby and I was working a big job and totally stressed out, also drinking a bottle of wine a night, which of course I did not tell my therapist how much I was drinking and was just, you know, having this conversation about how my boss was asking more and more and more of me and I was completely spent. And she was like, well, you get to decide how much you give. And I just was like, no, I don't. Like it was such a foreign concept to me. I'm like, he tells me what I need and then I have to give it or I have to quit or I'm going to be fired. Isn't it right? wild how therapists, because I've had this experience, even though I'm a therapist, I've had this experience on both sides of it. As a client, your therapist says something that is so simple, but something about a combination of the way they said it and the timing, it just hits you like, what? I remember one thing that my therapist in my 20s told me that just rocked me to my core in the same way that you're describing was I was talking about a member of my family who was really not in a healthy place. And I was trying to figure out how to connect with them and I couldn't, and the relationship was dysfunctional. And I was like, how am I supposed to be a therapist if I can't even figure out how to have a healthy relationship with this person? And she said, healthy people have healthy relationships with other healthy people. Mm. And I was like, 
Oh, (laughs) and I added to that, that like healthy people have strained relationships with unhealthy people and unhealthy people have strained relationships with everyone, Yeah, you know? And it was like, so such a revelation when, when she delivered that to me. You're like, how can Um, I fix this? Yeah. And you're also wanting to, and this is part of the nuance of control. You know, we think of someone controlling, we think of someone who is being really domineering, but my control showed up in, I'm going to control this person's level of peace and happiness, and I'm going to make them get better or see this or feel, you know, and it's, I think it's a real, really psychologically threatening to absorb how little control we have over our lives. And that's why we don't think about it too much. You know, and but because we don't think about it too much, we end up tricking ourselves into thinking we're in so much more control than we are. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And when you were saying about how therapists can say something, I remember coming home and like telling my husband, like, oh my God, my therapist said this today. And he was like, I've been saying that to you for five years. <laughs> and you don't like, how come when someone else says the same thing, you're like mind blown? You know, I know, I know it's so funny, but you know, it's interesting what happens when you really invest the time or the money or the, what what was really interesting about being at Google was this is a tangent, but the clients didn't pay for therapy and they didn't have to commute because I was on site. So what was really interesting is that so many more people Google would cancel or no show or show up 20 minutes late. When in my private practice, when you have to get out of work, you know, schlep on the subway, pay me, do all that stuff, nobody was ever late, you know, really. And it just, so there is, I think, a psychological, I mean, research backs this up thing about when you're investing in yourself, you are more receptive oh, to definitely. The messages that you're getting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you also talk about, you know, obviously adaptive versus maladaptive perfectionism. And it was interesting for me to hear about, and I wonder if this is more of the classic perfectionist, because I remember, you know, when you come into a job interview and, you know, the generic question of what's your biggest fault and like the safest answer, of course, is like, I'm too much of a perfectionist sometimes, you know what I mean? Which is like, a humble brag. So when women come to your practice, are they trying to eradicate perfectionism and see it as a negative or does it kind of depend on what type they are? So I got a lot of women who were trying to figure out why they couldn't find balance. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so not just in my private practice, that this happened everywhere. I, I used to have a private practice on Wall Street. And so I saw a lot of women in big law and finance. And I also used to work at a rehab. I also used to work in residential treatment with kids. And what's really interesting is that in all of these clinical contexts, this theme comes up um, with women, which is everyone seems to have it figured out of of how to be rested and look a certain way and be achieving all these goals and being tending to your family um, thoughtfully and send out the holiday cards and exercise and make your dentist appointment and you know buy books from your local bookseller and all this stuff. But I can't figure it out. So can you help me? And 
it was like cleaning a palace with a toothbrush to go one by one to these women and say, let me tell you what I've discovered. Balance isn't real. It doesn't exist. It's just an idea. And nothing is wrong with you if you haven't achieved this easy breezy flowing life where everything's automated and every Monday looks the same. And every Wednesday, you know, at eight o'clock, you go for a run without fail. And then this happens and that happens. It's like so much happens in life. We, our lives are disrupted all the time by little things like your kid getting sick or a school, you know, professional development day that you didn't know about. And you're like, what do you mean? My kid's not going to school today. Or big things, you know, like a health diagnosis or a death in the family or, you know, a hurricane in your corner of the world. There's this constant disruption. That's what life is. And yet all these women were sort of approaching therapy with like, how do I manage my life and plan for all the disruption so that it's never disrupted? You know, and really feeling like failures as a result and also feeling the need to hide that sense of failure because what's going to happen if everyone knows that, you know, I cried myself to sleep last night or that my partner and I are thinking of, you know, um, breaking up or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I hear that a lot as well. A lot of women who listen to this, a lot of women I work with are highly successful. Externally, everything looks really good. I mean, CEOs and doctors and lawyers and, you know, also like perfect stay-at-home moms of three kids who have graduate degrees, whatever it is, right? Yeah. And yet the thing I hear more than often is, I mean, obviously about drinking, but it it translates to everything else, which is, why can't I drink like a normal person? Followed by, why can't I cope like everyone else does? And I'm like, I talk to so many women, no one is coping. And I'm also like, if people looked at you, would they know what is going on with you in any way? Like, people probably look to you and think the same thing you're thinking about everyone else because nobody is being honest because they're mm-hmm. so scared. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's okay for other people to see you and to make their own decisions about what you are or are not struggling with. And it's not our job to go around telling everybody all the things that are going wrong, right? Yeah. There's like this weird thing happening in the wellness world where authenticity means that you're sharing your problems constantly with no discretion or boundaries. (laughs) It's like, that's not what authenticity is. That's not what vulnerability is, but you're right. If you are feeling alone in your suffering, because high functioning people are not ever going to get a call from their boss because they haven't been at work for four days straight and, and nobody's knows why they're showing up. You're, it's not that you're not able to do the things that you say you're going to do necessarily. It's that the way that you're getting them done is damaging you in some way. And maybe that looks like drinking excessively to cope or isolating yourself in some way. And you have to, in those moments, be really honest with yourself about the fact that it's not 
going well and you need some help. And help is something that I think is really tough for everybody to accept that we need. I have six different types of help spelled out in the book because I think we talk about help as if it's like this big, huge mountain to climb when sometimes the help is just one form of help. For example, I just need informational help about X. And you you know, we think of help as therapy and emotionally grueling and the dark night of our soul. And we have to do all of this stuff when sometimes it's just like, I need tangible help of, you know, I need somebody to walk my dog three nights a week. Can I get a neighborhood kid to do that? You know, and I need this and I need that. And if you think of help as this big, huge hurdle to climb, then you wait until you're ready to climb that before you ask for it. Mm-hmm. But if you can break help up into little parts, then you can begin to kind of slow drip help and support into your life in a way that I think people can more easily be ready for so that it's not some big dramatic moment of reckoning Breakdown. with yourself. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it can be that. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad way. I don't think there's any bad way to get help, but it doesn't have to be this whole like, okay, I need to turn my life around moment. There's so much pressure in that, you know, it can yeah. be little by little, step by step. Incrementalism is, I think, the most powerful way to change. Yeah. I always think of that as like the block and tackling of what is you know, making you grit your teeth and get through the day. And how can you alleviate some of that so you have more space in your life? Can you tell me about the six kinds of help that you have outlined? Yeah, well, so there's tangible help, right? And that is, you know, I have this line in the book of sometimes we don't ask for help because it's like, for what? What am I going to call somebody and tell them that, this is my problem. They're not going to say anything that's going to change the way I feel. They're not going to be able to bring this person back or make me feel better. And so what's the point of texting or calling? And the line in the book is like, maybe that's true, but just because somebody can't change the way you feel doesn't mean they can't come over and clean your kitchen. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes help comes in the form that to-do list stuff that you can't do. And the fact that you can't do it is, is broadcasting a message of helplessness to you. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of times I've listened to people describe their depression and say like, I don't know why I just can't, I can't put the laundry away. It's clean. It's on the, it's on the chair or whatever. We all have that one place. That's like where the pile collects of something. Best bedroom for me, like just shut the door. Right. It's like, I don't know why I can't do it. I don't know why. And it's like, well, then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Ask someone to help you do it. Just say, I don't know why I can't do this. Can you come over and help me do it? And it's steps like that, that it's like we're trying to figure out so much about who we are and what are the mechanisms at work that are enabling or disabling us from our ability to execute our lives. And this, it's like, just don't overthink it when you're in that space where you just need help. Just ask for the help without, you don't have to understand why, why you need it in that way that moment, right? There's time for all of that later. Um, There's obviously emotional support, which is like therapy, active listening, someone who can validate your experience and help you be seen. Um, There's financial support, which is like the truth of the matter is that sometimes you need money 
to get you through a crisis that you're in or some kind of problem that you're having. And asking for money is loaded for a lot of reasons, particularly for anyone who is in recovery, because I think a lot of people in that person's lives, life is burnt out by like worrying about, am I enabling your addiction or dysfunction? And so that helped. There's community support of just being able to be amongst people who are also going through what you're going through. That in itself is curative. And I think of this as imagine if, you know, those handy grabber claw things at an arcade, if someone plucked you up from your beautiful office right now, and planted you in a room with 50 people. I don't know, Casey, what you're going through in this moment in your life, but I know you're going through something as I am, as we all are, as, as is the human experience. I planted you in a room where 50 other people are telling their stories of how they're also going through that thing. That in itself would be curative for you. Oh. That in itself would be helpful. You wouldn't even have to do anything, you know? And so that's what it means to have community support is to know that you are not alone. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. And by the way, when you are drinking and struggling with moderating or trying to stop or worried about it, that is so helpful. And that can be person, that can be online Facebook groups. I have a guide to my absolute favorite one, the BFB, on my website. But like we said, I, I did Holly Whitaker. She's a friend of yours. I did her hip sobriety school when I was 60 days alcohol free and there were a hundred people in there. And just being able to talk about it without judgment and knowing you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, so amazing. It's, I think it's one of the most powerful forces in healing and recovery. And Dr. Kristen Neff, who is to self-compassion, what Dr. Brene Brown is to vulnerability, she calls that common humanity. And she frames self-compassion as a resiliency building tool that you have to learn to be able to animate in your life. And one of those three legs of the stool of self-compassion is common humanity, is understanding that your problem is not uncommon. 
It's so common. And if you knew how common it was, you would, you would just like, your shoulders would sink a little bit, you know, and that people really get into a lot of trouble when they feel like nobody can understand how hard I'm working at this or how much I don't want to be this or how much I wish this thing were different. So we had informational, financial, community, emotional, um, there's physical support. So this is like touch. Touch is actually very powerful. And speaking of Dr. Kristen Neff, she calls it her supportive touch technique. And I highlighted in the book. And it is so simple. It's just touching your hand to your chest. And if you can get under your clothes and touch skin to skin, even better. And just allowing your parasympathetic nervous system to feel the power of you attending to yourself with physical touch. And I don't think that can be underestimated either. You know, human beings are interdependent species and we need to talk to each other. We need to be touched. We need Mm -hmm. to be seen. And that's really powerful. And you talked about self-compassion, but also in the book, you one of the things that I thought was really powerful and would resonate with the women listening is self-punishment and numbing, Mm -hmm. um, blaming, negative self-talk as being sort of the accomplices to self-punishment. Can you talk about why women self-punish or punish themselves as opposed to being compassionate? Yeah. Well, because we don't understand what it means to be compassionate and we don't really value emotional literacy in the United States. And so we're like in our twenties before we hear what boundaries is for, you know, for the first time. And, you know, so what does self-compassion mean? Who knows? It sounds like it just means to be extra nice to yourself. It doesn't sound like a very powerful tool. And it feels like if you're self-compassionate, you're letting yourself off the hook for being a high striver. You know what I mean? Right. You're somehow not going to achieve what you're supposed to achieve if you don't beat yourself up all the time. Yes, because while we don't live in a culture which exalts self-compassion for the powerful tool that it is, we do live in a culture which uses punishment as a first response to any missteps, right? So just in so many ways, our culture teaches us, you know, that punishing and making things harder for yourself is the way to get something done. We still, this shocked me. Like grit, right? Like I actually don't like the word grit. No, well, I mean, I know it's all dependent on whose definition you're using, but yeah, this it's this no pain, no gain um, idea that the way to really whip yourself into shape is to be hard on yourself. Yes. And you don't heal yourself by hurting yourself. And what a punishment is, and this is how I define punishment, is a punishment is creating more pain for yourself. 
And the reason that you would create more pain for yourself is to motivate yourself to stop doing the thing that you're doing. And so we think that pain is the big motivator. And so the more pain we lay on top of what we're doing, the more we're going to get it together and turn it around. And actually the opposite is true because the more pain you're in, the more isolated you feel. And the more isolated you feel, the more stressed you are. And the more stressed you are, the more your stress response is activated. And when your stress response is activated, your brain is perceiving everything around you in a totally different way than it would perceive if you felt connected and supported. When your stress response is activated, you're flooded with cortisol and adrenaline. You're in a short-term solutions-oriented mindset instead of being able to get creative and understand long-term solutions. And, you know, there's a therapist, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, who coined this phrase, broaden and build. It's her whole theory of like, if you want to broaden and expand and build your life, you need to find a way to feel good. Because we only feel safe enough to make choices that broaden and build when we feel safe and good. And when we punish ourselves, we feel like shit. And we feel like, well, I don't trust myself because I just fucked everything up again. Here I go again. And so you're in this punitive relationship with yourself, scrambling to try to become a different version of yourself than who you think you are. And just doesn't work. And punishment just lays pain on top of whatever's there. I really stress this in the book that punishment is lazy. Punishment is different than taking accountability. It's different than discipline. It's different than experiencing a natural consequence. And it's different than rehabilitation. All that other stuff that I just mentioned requires some kind of thoughtful input about What did I do? What could I have done differently? What could I do instead next time? Punishment doesn't care about any thoughtful input. Punishment just lays pain on top of whatever's there. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because for years when I was drinking and I would wake up at 3 a.m. or I would wake up with a hangover, literally the first thought I would have is, What the fuck is wrong with you? Get your shit together. And Mm -hmm. I know so many women who think these thoughts about themselves or write themselves the meanest notes with the idea of if they are just mean enough to themselves, they will get their shit together and not drink so much, right? Yeah. And sometimes the punishment can look less obvious, right? And sometimes it does look like that of, what the fuck were you thinking? I can't believe I did that. Da, 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 da. But other times, you know, I use an example in my book and none of the stories in my book are true stories because my client's stories do not belong to me and I'm not going to share them, but they're based on real feelings and dynamics that came up in the room. And one of them is the story of Ava. And I used to run, this is true. I used to run group therapy at a rehab in Brooklyn and I ran an early stages of recovery meeting every Thursday night. And the meeting would end at nine o'clock and two minutes before nine, Ava in the, in the book drops what's known in the therapy world as a last minute bomb. (laughs) Last minute bomb is, I've heard of those. Yeah. yeah, They're also sometimes called doorknob confessions. It's when the client that you're working with drops some pretty dramatic 
piece of information on you at the last second of a session when there's not actually time to get into it. And I see them as really positive because it's like the client is ready to say something important, but they don't want to say it when they have to talk about it. So they're just like drop a bomb and then they leave. And so in this session, Ava says to the group that she has been drinking before the group she has been drunk the entire group and she's planning on leaving after the group to drink some more. And there's two minutes left in the session. And so I excuse everybody in the group and her and I sit together and I ask her after, you know, having some other conversation around this, like, what is it that you need right now? Like, what, what is it that you want? What would you do tonight if you hadn't been drinking? And she says, I would just take a hot bath. She knows what she needs to do to restore herself. She wants to go home and she just wants to take a hot bath, but she has decided that she's not going to do that. And instead she's going to go out and just keep drinking because taking a hot bath fits inside the story of someone who's maybe five years sober, not somebody who came to group therapy intoxicated. And so she's not giving herself permission to do something good and kind and restorative for herself because she has decided that she's not worthy of goodness or kindness. And when you decide that, what you're really saying is, I deserve to be punished. So she's going to do something that she knows is going to make her feel like shit, which is going out and drinking more. And she's not registering this all in her mind as, well, I'm punishing myself. And so this looks like that. And that we don't talk to ourselves like that in our head. She's registering it as, I feel like shit and I deserve it. And so that's what punishment can look like too. It's just the sense of defeatism and not allowing yourself to do the thing that would make you feel better and good because you don't think it doesn't match your action, you know? Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white-knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one day at a time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. 
So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Yeah, that makes sense. And also I see um, a lot of women and myself included, like if you're mad at yourself for doing something again or waking up with a hangover or whatever it is, you are so focused on overcompensating that you don't take care of yourself. Like you're like, I can't take a nap because X, Y, Z, I can't go get a massage or call a friend because uh, take a break from work because I don't deserve it because I'm a bad person. And like you said, then they don't, they aren't able to restore themselves. So at the end of the day, they're so exhausted that they almost repeat the same behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, like Dr. Harriet Lerner says, it takes a huge platform of self-worth to be able to acknowledge whoa, I really made a mistake. Let me let me look at that mistake and see why I took that mess, misstep and see what I could have done instead and get maybe a little more cushion of support around me for this. It takes a really big platform of self-worth to do that because you have to think, oh, there's a version of me that's not making this mistake. Mm-hmm. I made this mistake, which is an, an aberrant example of who I, that's not who I am. I am this other, bigger, more whole like, you know, for lack of a better term, like better version that doesn't do that stuff. So instead of, you know, getting curious about why did I drink? Why did I do that? You just get suspicious you're of yourself. You're like, here you go again. I can't trust you. This is more evidence. And now you got to tighten up everything yeah. and you address the problem from a place of suspicion and mistrust instead of doing the work of leaning into trusting yourself and being good enough to yourself so that you can actually restore and hear what you most need. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you wrote in the book about numbing, which I was like, yes, was you wrote that numbing. And of course I thought of drinking, but I know it can be a million different things is Mm -hmm. engaging in an activity that helps you ignore the feelings you don't want to feel unlike taking a break for the purposes of restoration, numbing behaviors are distracting, designed to help you repress your emotions. Numbing doesn't make us feel good. It makes us feel nothing. And when it wears off, you still have your pain to answer to. Because we think drinking, whatever it is, it we think it makes us feel good. Yeah. Yeah, you really do. And it's so confusing. And I have a lot of empathy for past versions of myself and anyone listening right now that's like, uh, it does make me feel good. Okay? Oh, God, like, yes, right? The kids go to sleep or I get home from work or whatever, and that glass of wine is just whatever. Or, you know, and I, I understand that. I really do. And at the same time, where you and I are not talking about behaviors as much as we're talking about patterns mm-hmm. and how those patterns make us feel about who we are and what's possible for ourselves. And when you're restoring 
when you're done restoring, you feel better. And if you're used to numbing as your primary problem-solving skill, as your primary way to emotionally regulate, then you're not used to feeling good after something. You're used to just like hitting pause and it doesn't necessarily make you feel worse or you don't have to encounter the feelings immediately. So I think a lot of people in their minds conflate the two of you're you're not feeling good. You're conflating not feeling immediately worse with feeling good. And that's not the same thing. So is that the thing to reflect on? Like after the activity, if it's restorative, I feel better. And if it's numbing, I feel the same. This is how I conceptualize it. So I talk a lot about pleasure in the book because I believe that Healing is not about figuring out what to do. It's about figuring out how to trust yourself. I mean, oftentimes we know what to do. It's not that complicated. It's like eat five fruits and vegetables a day. Don't drink too much. Take the stairs. Hang out with kind people instead of terrible people. Um, But the reason we don't trust ourselves is because we don't have as women enough chances to allow ourselves to understand what feels good and what feels what doesn't. Mm-hmm. This is a product of a lot of sociocultural stuff and diet culture and, and bigger issues. But there's a framework that I use to distinguish between immediate gratification and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you think of what you're doing as the event, right? So think of drinking wine as the event. If drinking wine is pleasurable for you, it's going to feel good when you drink the wine. It's also going to feel good as an immediate gratification. But immediate gratification before the event might stir anxiety of like, oh, I hope I don't drink more than one glass or I hope I don't indulge too much. And immediate gratification after the event also might stir some feelings of remorse or anxiety of like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. That uh, that was just like, I, I could have gone without that second glass, whatever. Whereas pleasure is a simple, joyful, direct satisfaction. You don't have that noise before the event and mm-hmm. you don't have it afterwards. Taking a walk, for example, through the streets of New York City is so pleasurable for me. Before I take a walk, I'm not like, oh, I hope I don't, I hope I don't take a walk tonight. I just want to be able to get through the night without taking a walk. While I'm taking a walk, it's pleasurable. Then after I take a walk, I'm not like, I got to stop taking walks. Yeah. Got to cut that shit out. You know, I don't think that way because it was a tr- pleasure. There's mm-hmm. there's no noise with pleasure. Immediate gratification is really noisy. They both look the same at the event stage. But you want to look around the event, what you're actually doing to decide whether this is something that is actually making you feel good, which is pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Or if it's just holding you over from feeling like shit, yeah, which is immediate gratification. And you talk about, you know, pleasurable activities being everything from sleeping or productive, listening to music, washing your car, working to get something done that you want to get done, redecorating, playing basketball, like all those things. Yeah, we've got the idea of productivity all wrong. And there's, again, this big push to be like, don't over-index on productivity and productivity is bad and rest, rest, rest. And it's like, of course, rest is essential. Rest is a need. Rest is important. But again, 
who is getting these messages? Women. And I have alarms going off in my mind when I hear people telling women not to worry about being productive, you know? And the thing is, this is one of the, in the book, I have specific tools and strategies and mindsets to kind of reorganize the way you think about a lot of stuff that contributes to perfectionism. And one of those things is productivity. And I read a life-changing article by um, Tony Schwartz and Catherine McCarthy in Harvard Business Review called Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. And they were saying that the, the reason that we don't do the things that we intend to do is not because we couldn't find a spare 15 minutes in our schedule. It's because when that 15 minutes comes, we are so fucking burnt out that we can't even think about doing it. So we just scroll Instagram for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever we... And so it's not that we run out of the time to do things. It's that we run out of the energy. So I frame being productive as doing anything that is going to enable you to operate with premium quality energy. Mm. Because one hour of premium quality energy in your day is going to serve you better than five hours spent approaching a task rushed, resentful, exhausted, confused, burnt out, disconnected, you know, so anything that helps you operate with premium quality energy is productive, including sleeping, including, you know, cooking. If you love cooking, including taking a walk, including having a great conversation with your friends, including watching something silly on TV that brings you pleasure And so that's the way that I think about productivity. I love that because when I was in early sobriety, I used to block off an hour, if I could, or half an hour on my calendar at work and go for a walk. And I would actually listen to Holly and Laura McCallan's home podcast because that was like coming out seven years ago. And I would walk to the water by my office and back. And then I would also put my alarm on before I went to get my kids at daycare to eat something with protein. Mm -hmm. And I would go Mm -hmm. to bed really early. Like those were three big shifts because I used to eat lunch at my desk, push through till 545, barely get my daughter at work before 6 p.m., like the last mother there and Mm -hmm. walk into my house starving, all of which, you know, you said with immediate gratification, um, the reason people binge on immediate gratification is because they're burnt the fuck out, right? They're not managing mm-hmm. their energy. Yeah. And so we're just trying to find a substitute for pleasure because deep down we know there's a part of us that knows this isn't how I'm supposed to feel. This yeah. isn't what it's supposed to be like. And so we've reached for immediate gratification from a place of like survival almost, you know, and again, I have a lot of empathy for being in that place where where you just feel like you cannot catch up to the point where you can actually allow yourself to graduate to a state of experiencing pleasure. Yeah. You're just stuck on this loop of immediate gratification. And one of the best ways to switch that paradigm is to not worry about what you need to start doing more of like starting the, that, that sounds so beautiful. What you just described of these simple acts that only you really know how much utility you have in them of taking walks or listening to certain podcasts, but just figuring out what you can stop and close the door on, yeah. like blocking this person on text, 
or any little thing. There's no such thing as a little thing when it comes to healing. Mm -hmm. Like anything you can do on behalf of your most authentic self, meaning the, the you that is really speaking without a filter, is going to have a huge impact on your, however you want to frame it, recovery, growth, expansion, um, peace. You know, there's no such thing as as a little thing. The yeah. little things are the big things. It's always so, so stunning to me when I listen. I've been listening to people talk very honestly about how they've changed for so long. And it's always what you just said. It's like, I gave myself permission to take a walk. You know, it's not oh. that they went on some 21 day retreat, blah, 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 whatever. Like a it's, silent retreat in Bali yeah, or something where they don't talk for 21 days. Right. It's that they incorporated into their daily life some sense of genuine respite and genuine yeah. compassion. Yeah. In one section of the book, you write about maladapted perfectionists. And I think this could be like every woman I know being perpetually on some kind of a joy diet. And, you know, it make makes so much sense. I mean, I'm also like, oh my God, I hate diet culture and and also what it what it says to women, but you link it to like low calorie, intermittent fasting and paleo because it it makes so much sense. But you said perfectionists are consciously trying to restrict pleasure as a misguided expression of responsibility. And women struggle so much to master or control immediate gratification, they never graduate to pleasure. And I was just like, oh my God, yes, we're always trying to restrict it like I should do Mm -hmm. X. My favorite question is whenever anyone says, I should do X, I'm like, okay, finish that sentence. What, but what I really want to do is why? You know what mm, I mean? Like I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book asks a question which is very annoying to be asked. <laughs> but it is what do you want? What do you want? Not what's best for your family, not what's best for your relationship, not what's best for your career, like what do you want? And Asking yourself that question can elicit a real deer in headlights response because we so often don't know as women how to separate ourselves from the roles that we're in or from the jobs that we have. And it can be a simple answer. It doesn't have to be some intense, you know, huge thing. It can be, I want to sleep more this week. And then just like beginning to ask yourself that question and believe your answer and then actionably attend to your answer and build a life around that, that's the way to move forward past all the immediate gratification and past the stuckness. And in order to figure out like, what is it that I want? Sometimes if you don't know the answer to that, which is common. So if someone's listening and they're like, I don't know, I don't even, I don't even don't get in the loop of like, I don't even know what I want. How can I even know that? Just let me stop you right there and say, part of what helps inform our desires is being able to feel what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And if we're numb because we're drinking wine every night or we're overworking ourselves or whatever we're doing, 
you can't tell what feels good and what feels bad. And so it's hard to gauge what you want because you're turning off an internal system that's designed to point you in the direction of your desire, which is pleasure. Mm -hmm. I, so what I'm hearing from you is like, start small. Women are like, oh my God, what I want is to quit my job and XYZ, but I can't because of mortgage, kids, husband, my boss, right? And so starting much smaller with what feels good right now. Yeah, I think what you what what you want might have a really big answer. And I would take that answer seriously. I would also take the smaller answer that again doesn't seem consequential and seems like, oh, that's too little. That's not going to move the needle. Yes, it will, because it's not what you're doing. It's the gesture behind what you're doing, which is to say, my wants are important and imperative. And I deserve to get what I want. And I deserve to lead a life that reflects my desire and my personhood, not some other version of that. So when you say what I want right now is really five minutes alone, and then you give yourself five minutes alone and take yourself seriously, you're communicating and signaling to yourself that you are important. And those are the muscles that help build the muscle that then will leave the job or leave the toxic relationship or leave alcohol behind Mm -hmm. because you have all this other stuff that you actually want and that feels good. So then the other things can fall away. Yeah. I love that because, you know, when you were also talking about what do you want, obviously, like, when I stopped drinking, I started very small, which is like, I want to feel better. I want to stop self-sabotaging. I want to stop doing this. And, you know, I want to take a nap. I want to go for a walk. But I remember a couple years after I stopped drinking, I was at a Fortune 500 company and I was talking to my GM who was... I think some combo of a classic slash intense perfectionist, like looked amazing, sent all the emails at 3am, took all these business trips, had two little kids. Like I was just like, oh my God, you know, how does she do it? And she was talking to me and I had already been going to coaching school and she was like, okay, what do you want? Do you want more scope? Do you want more impact? Do you want more people under you? And I literally was like, dear, the headlights. And I looked at her and I said, I want to be a life coach. And she was like, I've never seen her stunned into silence before in my life. I was like, the minute it came out, I was like, holy fuck, what did I just do? I felt like I was like this wolf who like chewed off its arm to like, I was like, and I went back to my desk and I told my coworkers who all knew I had gone to coach. She had no idea I'd gone to coaching school. And I was like, yeah. Well, like they were crying so hard. They were laughing at like, holy shit. Yeah. And I can see it's still like stuff. It's still like, it seems emotional in some way for you. And I'm so glad you shared that story because saying aloud, even if you only say it to yourself, what you want, as opposed to like letting it echo in your mind, letting it echo in your mind. If that's what you can do, I'll take it. That works. But if you say it aloud, even just to yourself, something happens that I can't explain. And if you say it in front of another human being, (laughs) like a whole other situation, but something magical, some kind of alchemy occurs when you let the words of what you most want hit the air. Mm -hmm. It changes something in a way that I can't articulate or explain, but I know is true. 
So I could talk to you all day. I think everyone should get the book. It's called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Um, But I wanted to end on one of the parts of the book I love, and I feel like it goes throughout it. You talk very clearly about what you love about perfectionists, why you're drawn to them in a really positive way, especially when they're able to harness that in a way that's adaptive and good. Can you tell me what's awesome about perfectionists? Yeah, I think if I had to use one word to describe perfectionists, it would be contributors. Like perfectionists see an ideal and they see the reality plunked down in their laps. And there's something compulsive in them and actively wanting to bridge that ideal and kind of contribute to a cause bigger than themselves, right? And when we're talking about adaptive perfectionism, we're talking about a level of connectedness with yourself and your community and something you very much believe in. And it's rare that people really believe in, um, in a thoughtful, conscious way, things that are shallow, right? And so whatever your ideal is as a perfectionist, whether that's connectedness with others or creating beauty and calm around you, whatever it is, that desire to contribute is, I think, so inspiring to be around. And it's not, I I hate saying it's not a bad thing because to me, it's like the opposite. It's a beautiful thing. It's an expression of something you want to create that is intangible, that you know you can't have. Adaptive perfectionists are not unintelligent people. They understand things can't happen perfectly all the time. It's about being able to, you know, if we, if we look at the root of perfection, you get to the Latin word perficere, per complete and facere do. And when we say something is perfect, what we mean is it's complete, it's whole. That's why you say, oh, that that person's a perfect stranger. You don't mean they're a flawless stranger. You mean this is a, this is a complete stranger to me. And so what perfectionists are really after I discovered is a sense of wholeness and connection to that wholeness and the energy that comes from really being in touch with that and animating it out in the world. When people describe perfect moments to me, they're never describing the material. They're always actually ironically being like, it shouldn't have been perfect. It was raining. I spilt this thing all over my dress and da, 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 but it was perfect. And when people describe to me moments that should have been perfect, but weren't, they're describing stuff that is superficially perfect in a state where they felt an internal fracture, where they did not feel whole, where they lost sight of their completeness, you know? And so to me, the most powerful thing that I got out of exploring this construct, which is so kaleidoscopic and unending, is that perfectionists want wholeness and they want to bring wholeness to life. Mm -hmm. They don't really care about flawlessness. Flawlessness is the shortcut you take to wholeness when you're in a maladaptive space. And we all know shortcuts don't work, you know? And so that's really how I view perfectionism is just this contribution and celebration of our own wholeness that we already have. Yeah. 
I feel like that's the perfect place to leave this. Can you, I know people are going to want to learn more and follow up and take the quiz um, because it's super interesting. I actually, my mother-in-law is 75 years old and she read this book before I did and underlined it. She was staying with me and like, she's a messy perfectionist. So um, I just thought we had great conversations about it, but where can people find you and follow up? So I'm on Instagram at Katherine Morgan Schaffler. And if you want to take the quiz, it's perfectionistsguide.com, or you can go to my website, which is also my name, katherinemorganshaffler.com. And the book is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And it's out now on audio, hardcover, Kindle, wherever you buy books, whatever kind of books you buy. <laughs> do you read the audio or you? The- I do. I love I that. Do. I love it when yeah. the authors read it. Everyone Perfect. told me it would be really hard, but um, I was like, uh, writing the book is hard, reading it, not hard. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my it. pleasure. I loved this talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.